Well, hello and uh, welcome to week six, our final week in our Learn to Read the Bible Effectively seminar. Uh, it's uh, hard to believe we've come this far so quickly. And uh, here in week six, we're going to kind of finish with uh, all the heavy questions, life and death in the Bible, uh, good versus evil. And hopefully we've seen over the, the course of, uh, of the weeks we've, uh, we've been together that um, the Bible can interpret itself. It, it has the answers uh, to the questions that, that everyone wants answers to, uh, the, the questions that people want answers to, but you know, are they willing to, to look? Are they willing to consider uh, what the Bible has to say? Now, last week we, we looked at uh, this, this concept of mystery. Uh, that uh, what 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 was once a mystery or one, once a secret or hidden has now been revealed. And so we'll see that here, the answers to life and death, the big questions. Why are we here? What happens when we die? All those questions are are found in the Bible. They're, they're a secret that has been revealed. And uh, we, we finished last week with looking at the Jews uh, and the law of Moses. And, and that's very relevant in our world even today. And uh, we'll have some comments on that as we are conclude our seminar today. So uh, that's our plan. We'll we'll wrap up with a, a terminology section, our last one, and uh, then a conclusion. But the two big topics uh, are, are at the beginning here, life and death in the Bible and good versus evil. I will remind you that uh, these slides are available online, as well as uh, some extensive notes that go into a lot more detail. Um, and there is uh, some homework as well that we'll comment on right at the end. So, so here's here's the big here's the big question, the first of many that we'll look at today. Where does life come from? Well, the Bible says clearly in Genesis two verse seven, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Well, that's that's the equation, if you will, that, that the Bible gives. God took dust or clay and he, and he formed uh, a man. It, it would have been like a corpse, I guess, just a, a body. Um, there was no life in it. So where did the life come from? Well, when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And when God shared his life, his spirit, his breath with this, this inanimate uh, thing made out of dust, it came to life, and man became a living being. That's the, the New King James. Many, many versions will there say there, and man became a living soul. And of course, we looked at that soul earlier, um, that it that it's the word, the, the Hebrew word nephesh, and it means a living creature. It was it was the same word used of, of men uh, as it was of all the other creatures and animals, fish, birds, uh, beasts of the, of the earth that God made. And so God's spirit, God's breath is what animates all that we see around us. Well, what about the reversal? We have there a graphic of what it might have been like um, in the times of Noah. And, and at that time when God sent a flood because of man's wickedness to destroy all life on the earth, it says all flesh died that moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every men all in whose nostrils with the breath was the breath of the spirit of life all that was on the dry land died and so uh it began with dust animated 
by God's breath or God's spirit. When all flesh died, that spirit, that breath, that life left them. And of course, they would have returned to dust. And and so a living being became a dead being. And we're going to see that's consistent with scripture. And if you did the homework sheet on a soul, um, which which would have been uh, week two, you would have looked up many verses and seen that uh, this idea of a soul or a being are synonymous. It's, it applies to, to men, it applies to beasts and birds. And in this case, it wouldn't have applied to the into the, the fish and the things in the sea because they could survive the flood. But they too um, were called living beings or this, this Hebrew word nephesh. So you can go back and, and do a little bit more work on that from week two if you're interested in taking this further. Here we're just looking at the fact that life came from God animating dust and uh, death is the reversal of the process spoken of in Genesis 2 verse 7. So really then, if we look at this um Genesis 2, verse 7, uh, being a, a mathematician myself, uh, I like to break things down into like equations. So this is what we have. We have dust that came from the earth. And then added to that was the breath of life, which came from God. And these two things put together gave us a living soul or a living being. So dust plus breath of life equals a living soul or a living being. And uh, that's really just in very simple terms what Genesis 2 verse 7 is saying. And so um, di diagrammatically here or graphically, this amazing animation that I put together, I'm sure you'll be impressed. So there's a person, just dust, formed out of the dust of the, of the earth, and there's no life in him. He's not a living soul. The, um, the breath of life or the spirit of God uh, comes into him and he's a living soul. Or a living being, and and that's really what we see then in terms of uh, that that equation, uh, that demonstration of uh, of life coming from God in Genesis two verse seven. Well, then what happened if if this dust was animated by the Spirit of God, which never dies? God God is forever. God is from everlasting to everlasting. Well, what then happened? Why did that breath ever leave him? Where did death? come from? Well, we're dealing with the heavy topics here, aren't we? Life and death, scripturally defined. Well, again, we can go right back to creation. The, the answers are not only in the Bible, um, but the answers are uh, a lot of them found in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And in fact, our follow-on seminars will come from the book of Genesis. So death was not a part of the creation as it was first made. And, and what's the repeated phrase throughout Genesis 1 and 2 that describes, well, certainly Genesis 1 especially, that describes God's creation? God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Um, and, and so there was, there was no um, intention from the beginning to have anything that wasn't very good. In fact, the only thing that wasn't good in Genesis chapter 2 was that man should be alone. And so God made the woman to be with him and then everything was very good but god gave adam and eve a law first given to um to adam in genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 it says the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat we'll have some comment on that later but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it for in the day that thou 
that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so death was described. We don't know if Adam would have had any idea of what that even meant, but he would have got the idea that this wasn't good. Um, it was it was not part of, of God's initial plan to have death. And this is kind of um, followed up on and explained further in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve transgressed this one simple law. Um, we have here, the promise was kept following the eating of the fruit by Adam and Eve. The curse of death was pronounced upon them by God in Genesis 3, verses 15 to 19. And we won't read all those through, but note especially the end of verse 19, where we have these words, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And so the reversal of Genesis 2, verse 7, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. Once they transgressed and sin, sinned, at some point, now for Adam and Eve, that was many, many years later, they breathed their last. And quite often in scripture, death is described as, you know, his spirit left him or he breathed his last. So the spirit returns to God who gave it. It's his breath of life. And all that's left is dust because that's all we are. Um, and we return to the dust from which we were originally taken. And, and we know that's the fact. Every single person that's ever died, um, lived and then died, has returned to dust. You know, some are preserved in, in, in Egypt or, you know, we have ways of, of making the, the corruption process take a little bit longer, but ultimately we return to dust. And so we can see this is, again, a consistent message in the Bible. Romans 5 verse 12, wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so that one man is Adam, he entered the world, he sinned and, and death came because of that sin. So death, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And of course, the reversal of that is also by one man, Jesus came life because he didn't sin and we have life through him. And so we really have this idea of these two Adams. The, the first Adam, Adam and Eve, brought death because of sin. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, didn't sin and brings life. And later on in Romans, this is a verse that you want to highlight or, or really take note of, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a choice, and we'll deal about this a little bit in our next section as well, free will and choice. So sin is like a master uh, that pays wages. So if we give ourselves over to sin, we get paid. We get paid by death. Eternal life, on the other hand, is a gift. We can't earn it. We don't work for it in the same sense that we, we uh, work for King Sin. It's a gift from God, and it comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's a, a beautiful passage that describes really life and death. Life as we know it now, the death that results from sin, and life that's coming in the future. That eternal life that will be granted to those who are with Christ when he returns and resurrected and given eternal life. It's a gift which God gives to us. So really then we see that death is a consequence of sin and, sin and passes to all mankind because we all sin. And God um, deals with that problem, as we'll see through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens then at death? You know, we, we've seen um, the creation process. 
well, what happens at death? It, it's pretty clear. You know, I, I think from the beginning of time, mankind has always wanted to know what lies beyond the grave. Well, as we've seen, death is the reversal of life. Um, this is a consistent message from Genesis through to Revelation. And here in Job, the Spirit of God made me. So we see it physically and perhaps more graphically demonstrated in Genesis 2, verse 7, God forming like a potter, this, this clay figure, and then breathing into it the breath of life, almost like a, a CPR process, breathes into it and becomes a living being. Um, in a sense, that happens to each one of us. We, we understand how conception works and life comes into the, the womb of a mother. <clears throat> but here, Job describes that as the spirit of God made me, the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So the sense in which God breathes into the nostrils of every person that's ever been, been born. And death is the reversal of this. Again, in Job, the very next chapter, Job 34, verse 14. If he, speaking of God, set his heart upon man, if he gathered unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would turn again to dust. And so we see this consistent message all through scripture. Um, and, and it's described here. Now, we know that death happens sort of at short intervals. Well, you know, periodically on, on various people <clears throat> over time. But Job here is saying if if God just withdrew his spirit from, from the earth altogether, all would die simultaneously. It's his breath, it's his spirit, it's his life that gives life to all on earth. And, and so death is really likened unto a sleep. And there's several passages here. We're not going to go into detail, but but death is like a sleep. So um you know, there's not, there, there's no existence, there's no knowledge, there's no understanding, there's there's nothing going on. When we die, we are dead. We are no longer alive, and and it's like being asleep. Um, and so, what we have then is the reversal of of um, Genesis two verse seven. We we have a living soul or a living being, but when we take away the breath of life that which comes from God and it goes back to God, it's his spirit, it's his breath, then we have dust once again. And um, we have this passage then in Psalm 40, uh, 146 verse 4, his breath goes forth, he breathes his last, he returns to the earth, to the dust. In that very day, his thoughts perish, we cease to exist. Without 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 God's spirit, without God's breath animating us, we, we don't exist, there is nothing there. Uh, there's nothing that lives on after death. The spirit returns to God who gave it. We return to the dust. Our thoughts perish and we cease to exist until when? Well, until the resurrection, when that dust is reconstituted and God's spirit comes back into it. Uh, there's nothing happening in the interval of time between death and resurrection. And so what we have then, uh, I've quoted this verse uh, a couple of times, but here it is, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. The spirit shall return, sorry, then the dust shall return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Now, there's nothing unique about the individual in that spirit. It's God's spirit. It's his breath. It's his life, which he gave to us. There's there's no part of us that, that goes back with that spirit to God. It was God's all along. The us was the combination of God's spirit with dust. That's the us. That, that's who we are. That's the living soul of the living being. When we breathe our last, and perhaps you have had the experience of, the tragic experience of being beside someone as they breathe their last, that breath leaves them and goes back to God who gave it. 
and we become dust. And, and God's spirit is gathered unto him, as, as it said in Job. Well, then, if death is it, there's our thoughts perish, there's, there's nothing. Well, what lies beyond death? And, and fortunately for us, the Bible is very clear on this. This is a graphic of, of Jesus after his resurrection. He went through the same experience as us. He, he um, was crucified on the cross. He breathed his last. Says is that you know he said um, unto thee I commend my spirit and and so he breathed his last and he died they poked him he was dead um, and they laid him in a grave he was asleep for three days but of course he was resurrected and um, we had a, some of these passages uh, on that previous slide but we'll just look at a couple of them here Daniel twelve verse two it says plainly many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So notice it's not everyone, and, and we can talk about that later, but they're asleep in dust. They, they, they return to the dust. It doesn't matter if it was Abraham or if it's someone who just died last week. They are asleep. David is uh, David and, and Abraham and them are certainly corrupted and returned to dust. Uh, some who died recently, they may still be a, a physical body in their coffin, not quite decayed, but they're dead. There's nothing there, but they'll awake. The, the spirit will return into them. God will breathe once again into them, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. When Lazarus was dead, this is this is Jesus' friend Lazarus with his two friend, two sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus said to Mary, your brother will rise again. So I said this to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She had hope for her brother beyond the death that he had suffered. Now, it was still very tragic. She was very sad. She'd wish Jesus had been there to, to heal him before he died. Um, but she had a hope that he would rise again at the last day. And um, Paul clearly says in, in uh, Acts 24 that he has hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. And, and so between death and resurrection, there is no existence uh god's breath has returned to him we return to dust and we await the day of resurrection so resurrection is the only true christian hope and uh, if you want to i would recommend highly recommend just sitting down and perhaps you could pause the the video right now and sit down and just read through first corinthians 15 it's an extensive treatise on what happens at death and the questions like well, what kind of body we're we going to have how's it going to happen when's it going to when's it going to take place all those questions are answered in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we move on then to our second section, a next heavy, good versus evil. And, and so again, the, the age-old question, where did evil come from? Well, as we mentioned earlier, our answers are in Genesis. Um, and so Genesis 1 verse 31, the end of the, the, the six days of creation, God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So the evening, the morning were the sixth day. It was very good. There was there was no evil. And God, we saw last, we saw last week, or I guess it was um, two weeks ago, we saw the purpose of God revealed, that it's to fill the earth with his glory, with, with men and women who, who manifest his character, his glory. His, his his character of, of goodness and mercy and grace, long suffering, patience these these attributes of God that are good um, is what his intention is, and it will happen. But 
We don't see that in the world today. So where did evil come from? Well, the Bible is quite clear that evil was not a part of God's original creation. When the earth is restored, when, when Eden is restored, when paradise is on the earth, there will not be evil. Um, but it soon appeared on the scene through the transgression of Adam and Eve, disobedience, and of course, the result was the result of sin and disobedience. So, well, that begs the question then, what is sin? Well, scripture again is clear. First John 3 verse 4, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the tree, that's sin. They, they disobeyed God. You know, the serpent tried to make them think that it wasn't a sin, that it was actually okay. In fact, it was a good thing. And, and that's what happens. We see that in the world today. So often, uh, God clearly says something is wrong. And society, um, you know, the world at large, our governments, whoever, says, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. You can do that. It doesn't matter what God said. We, we're changing. We're changing the law. Anything we do that's in opposite of what God says is sin. God said, don't eat the tree. They ate the tree. That's sin. And, and that really has come down through the ages of time. The New King James says the following, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That is absence of God's law. If, if we're disobeying God's law, living without God's law, that's sin. Now, it's important to know that God does not tempt or cause us to sin. Uh, and, and this can get somewhat misunderstood or complicated. Uh, but again, if we read the Bible effectively, uh, we can see, in fact, that uh, this is absolutely true and consistent with Scripture. So James 1, verse 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Hmm. So God doesn't tempt us. He may put us to the test. He may put, put us into, into situations where we need to make a choice, like he did Adam and Eve, but he doesn't tempt us. It's not his desire that we sin. In fact, quite the opposite. His desire is for us to be obedient to him. Um, and so James goes on to say, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So Eve looked at the tree differently after the serpent planted some false ideas in her head and her own desires were, were uh, inflamed and she was enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. If we allow our evil um, thoughts and desires to, 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 to take root, to germinate, uh, the language here is of a birth, to conceive, ultimately um, a child is born and that birth in this case is sin. And if sin is undealt with, if it's never forgiven, if it's never, um, you know, if, if we never come to terms with our sin, if we just live in our sin, then when it's full grown, that child grows up and it brings forth death. And and sadly, that's that's the situation we find ourselves in. And so we've called it here the sin cycle. Um, here we're we're drawn away of our own lusts. You know, we we uh, we see something or we hear something or we're thinking about something. Our lusts are inflamed. We're enticed. And that brings forth death. And and, and so that brings forth sin and sin leads to death. Um, and as our graphics, you know, says that here lies everyone. We all end up 
Uh, and, and, you know, while we're still alive and not dead, we, we, we go through this cycle again. And this, we just go round and around and around. And as we mentioned, if, if this sin is undealt with, it leads ultimately to death. There's, there's no way out of this cycle. Um, it, it just, it just leads to more and more lust, more and more sin and ultimately death. And, and we'll, we'll talk later about how this cycle is broken. And of course that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so again, there's so many passages like this. First John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, things that are lawless, without God's law, without God's constraint, here it is, the lust, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. And we may have seen this chart before, but we have this, this beautiful connection, um, you know, as the, the lusts that John describes in First John 2. Eve's experience and Adam in Genesis chapter three, Jesus and his temptations. And if you went through that worksheet, um, that was work three, week three, the workshop on Jesus answering the temptation. You may have seen this chart then uh, in, in that homework section. And of course, we then have the antidote. So for example, um, of all these lusts in, in, that are in the world, John says there's the lust of the flesh. Well, Eve saw that the, the, the tree was good for food. And Jesus was hungry when he desired to make the, the stone into bread. And uh, it all was basically about the here and now. You know, if you look at the, uh, what God had planned for Eve, they could eat of all the, 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 uh, the trees in the garden. And they were all good for food. She didn't have to um, circumvent God's law to, to eat something that was good. All that God provided was good. Jesus knew that God was going to provide food and he had to focus on the more important food, the, the word of God. That was the more important food. And so it's all about hope. We know that uh, it, the antidote here is hope. It's waiting. God has great things in store for us. God's purpose will be fulfilled. We need to, to hope in God's promises. We need to wait for God to bring about those promises. Well, the second lust was the lust of the eyes. And it clearly says that, that Eve saw the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that it was pleasant to the eyes. And Jesus, in his temptation, saw all the kingdoms of the world. He could imagine what it was like to be the king of the world. But faith is the antidote. Faith sees the invisible. It doesn't see the here and now. What, what our natural eyes see is going to lead us astray. And so we have to have the eyes of faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about, those that saw the invisible. And of course, the last lust was the pride of life. And, and what was Eve tempted with? You shall be like God. Um, that was the, the, the ultimate thing that she desired was to be like God. And of course, God had that planned. And if they'd just been patient, that was their ultimate destination. They were made in his image and likeness, but they, again, couldn't wait for it. They wanted it now. And it was their pride that welled up in her. And, and, and similar to Jesus, when he was tempted to, to jump off the pillar, the pinnacle of the temple, to, to make this big show, to show everyone, you know, if you are the son of God, cast yourself and prove it to everybody, you know, and, he, and, and his pride might have welled up inside him. But, but the antidote was love and to not tempt God, to wait for God. So faith, hope, and love are the antidote to these three sources of sin. Love is selfless not selfish. And, and so when pride gets in our way, we need to, to think of others first, to put the needs of others ahead of the needs of our own and, and show true godly love. So is man inherently good or evil? You know, this is, this is again, a big question. And um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know the answer, but the Bible is clear. 
Uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are evil by nature. That's what comes naturally uh, because we're, we're born in the, in the, the fallen state uh, that, that uh, we inherit from our father and he, from their parents and their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. We have this inside voice that says, don't listen to God, go do your own thing. And, and sin comes from within. Um, this is this is Jesus saying, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. He says, look, don't worry about what you eat. I mean, obviously eating is important. We want to stay healthy. But in terms of, of sin, no, it's not what goes into a man, but comes what comes out. He says, what comes out of a man defiles a man. And here's Jesus' words. Now, this isn't me speaking. This is the words of Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of men, look what comes out of our heart. It's not goodness, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murder, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. These things, and it's not literally our heart that pumps and beats blood, but like who we are. It's it's poetic language for us. It's 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 not a nice thing to hear. But our own worst enemy is the person that looks back to, at us from the mirror. Out of our own heart perceive these things. And Jesus said, all these things come from within. These defile a man. Not to eat with unwashed hands or to eat the wrong kind of food. Spiritual defilement comes from within. That's Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so, man is evil, God is good. And, and we see, you know, this graphic here of a world that is just on the outside. What we see, what we see today is, is corrupt, but it's not God's plan. It's not corrupt to the core in that sense of evil. God has a plan. So evil may prevail, prevail for a season, but ultimately good will prevail according to God's timetable. And so we have this wonderful passages in, in Romans 8. And I think if we just read these and think about our world today, with the whether it's the pollution, the environmental crisis, or the the, the nations at war, or the the wickedness we see in society, people abusing each other or killing each other, all these things are just symptomatic of what the root problem is. And so Paul, writing through the Spirit, says in Romans eight verse eighteen, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory." which shall be revealed in us. It will be revealed when the, the layers are pe peeled back, as you will, if you will. There, there is, God has a plan and a purpose that we learned about a couple of sessions ago, and it will be revealed. And this, for the earnest expectation of the creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And it's like this whole earth is just groaning and travailing. That's the language of scripture. And it's like, ah, oh, please. And it's not, I mean, it's not going to be solved by man. You know, man is inherently evil. We, we may put Band-Aid solutions on things. We may improve things a little bit, you know, reduce the carbon or the greenhouse gases or, you know, try and enact laws that make for a peaceful, more civil society. But it's just Band-Aid solutions. The big solution will only come at God's time when he sends Jesus. It says, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It's all about faith, hope, and love. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Jesus will return. He'll raise the dead. He'll gather the faithful. 
the earth will be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea. That is ultimately what is going to happen. So then why is there this suffering? Why has God allowed this to happen from Genesis chapter 3 and on? And so we hear this cry, man, mankind, people, men and women, saying to God, why do you allow so much suffering? And of course, God answers to us, I was about to ask you the same thing. And this is not God's intention. So the world that we see today is not the world that God had planned or has planned. And he will bring an end to it all. We believe very, very soon. So why is there suffering? Well, for many reasons. One is, as we've seen, it's simply because of our own wicked human nature. Why do people do bad things? Because it's their nature and they've given into it. But there may be an argument that could, could well, there is definitely an argument made in Scripture that suffering has its purpose. You know, sin and suffering are a part of the present state of things. It reminds us that we need something better to come and gives us um, impetus to have hope in God. But also, um, you know, it, they're not caused by the design and purpose of God, but by the folly of mankind in the very beginning of history and perpetuated in many cases, by the foolish actions of an ignorant and disobedient world. So a lot of what we see is unnecessary. But there are times when God uses suffering to to refine or mold the Christian disciple. We look at the, the example of the character of Job, who suffered much, and yet in the end, it brought forth glory and honor to God and made him a better person. You know, Paul says in Acts 14, verse 22, and of course, Paul was speaking from much experience. We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. He was coming out of an experience where he'd been jailed and beaten and imprisoned unjustly. And he came out of that circumstance, um, encouraging the other disciples and demonstrating to them that, yeah, sometimes there is many tribulations, but it's through those tribulations that we can enter the kingdom of God. So, Yes, suffering um, and, and, and trials can mold and shape us, but other times it's just sad, tragic events brought about by the foolishness of, of ourselves or other people, governments, whatever, reminding us that we need something better and it's coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. So suffering can have a purpose. Um, and although these may be difficult words to hear, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, um, but Peter's encouraging us to rejoice when we go through various trials. He 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 likens it that it's just he says it's just for a little while, and he likens it to to gold that's being purified. We have the graphic there of of the smelting of gold, and and pure gold can only it has to come through the fire. The, the impurities need to be taken out of it. So he says you have been grieved through various trials, but it's the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. Though which the perishes, though it be tested or tried by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, all these things are for our eternal benefit. We, ha we have not seen yet, but we love. Uh, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So suffering, trials, difficulties in our own life, can work in us to develop patience, sympathy for others, kindness, and appreciation, and ultimately a need for God. We can't do this on our own. We need God. And so <clears throat> there are times when 
difficult circumstances bring about, as as uh, Peter says, a, a far more and, and greater um, purpose in the will of God. So why doesn't God intervene when, when we get into trials and difficulties? And, and this, again, we'll try and explain it. God would not be able to accomplish his master plan if he just intervened, if he just solved all our problems every step of the way. It'd be like, you know, what do they call the helicopter parent that, that just clears the way. They're hovering around, always making sure that their child never has any difficulty or trial or, or challenge, just solves all their problems for them. That child grows up to be 100% dependent on their parent in a negative way. They never learn to, 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 to deal with issues themselves. And God does not do that to us. There are times when he intervenes, perhaps, but not every step of the way. And that's because God values free will and obedience so much that he built it into the very fabric of his creation. <clears throat> in other words, what we're saying here is he doesn't want us to be robots, you know, he could have created us so that we just always thought and did like a puppet on the st a string or a robot exactly what God wanted, that, that served him without thinking or choosing. And, and on the other hand, he doesn't want slaves that serve him out of fear and compulsion. That That's not what God wants. God wants us to choose to obey him. I mean, think, for example, of, of uh, you know, a, a pet dog that you have, and you've trained the dog to, to sit to stay, to, to, to fetch the stick and bring it back, to roll over, to, to wait uh, for your command. <clears throat> and you've trained that dog and it does it out of obedience and love for you. Hopefully not because you've whipped it and, and beaten it in submit, into submission. There's, there's no glory in that, but because out of love and, 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 and a trust in you that you're going to reward it for that obedience. Now compare that to a, a robotic dog. That you type into your computer, you know, sit, run, stay, you know, retrieve, whatever. And this robotic dog goes and does it, brings it back. Now, there might be some satisfaction to the programmer, but think about your feelings towards that robotic dog, to the real dog that loves you and obeys you because of your kindness and, 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 and trustworthiness and faithfulness to the dog. That's God with us. Maybe a crude example, but hopefully a sense of uh, maybe an experience that you've had. The result of it is that many people choose not to obey God's word at all. You know, when we say God has given us free will, that's because God's given us free will. And, and, and it's only free will if some people don't make the right choices. It's not free will if everyone just always does the right thing. Um, and, and God knew that would be the case, but he allowed it to happen anyway. His, he valued free will so much that he was saying, I'm willing to allow many, many people to make bad choices. And it grieves God. He's not willing that any should perish, but he acknowledges that, that it's necessary. Now, a, a way of perhaps understanding this, and hopefully this doesn't get too deep, but uh, you know, why doesn't God intervene? How, how does free will work? Well, it can be well explained using this, what we're going to demonstrate here is called a constraint triangle. God's character, that is righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth, demand that he cannot compromise his own principles. <clears throat> now, here's, here's a constraint triangle that might face a manufacturer, okay? So um, a manufacturer cannot provide you with the best quality at the lowest price delivered fast. You can only pick two. So here they are. Um, this, is, this is a constraint triangle right out of the manufacturing process. Cost, quality, time. They're the, the three vertices of the triangle. 
So you might phone up and say, I want the widgets that you're making. Please make me a widget. And uh, the manufacturer says, fine. When would you like it? Okay. And you say, I want it tomorrow. And uh, he says, okay, um, we can do that. What what kind of quality of widget do you want? And he said, the, the, man, uh, the, the person asked, called up, said, look, got to be the best quality, like your best widget. And he says, fine, that's going to cost you a lot of money, $6,000. And you're like, what? I can't afford $6,000 for, for a widget. And he, and he says, well, um, if you want a lower cost, but you still want the same quality, that's going to take time. Uh, if you want low cost, but high quality, I'm going to have to fit that in when I can, you know, I'll try and uh, work on it, you know, I get moments here and there, but it's going to take a month for you to get this high quality at that low cost that you want only $1,000. You're like, I can't wait a month. I need it tomorrow, but I I, I can't pay more than $2,000. And he says, okay, fine. Um, I'll, I'll whip it through the line quickly. I'll get, I'll, 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 I'll get one of my guys to work on it, but it's not going to be great quality. You need, you need to make a choice. You can't have all three. You need to pick two. Now, again, perhaps a crude example, but I would suggest that, that God deals that way. His own, as we've said there, justice, mercy, righteousness, demand, that only two of these three things can be chosen. God is constrained, not that God can't do any. God can't do anything. He's all powerful. But in this moral sense, he's constrained <clears throat> when it comes to offering eternal life in a perfect will, a perfect world while allowing free will. So here, if he's giving us free will, then there's a choice. Um, we have to give up a loving community if everyone gets a go. <clears throat> it isn't just, you know, zap people with lightning right away. So he's given us free will and he's given life to everyone. We're not going to have a loving community. And, and that's what we see people mocking God, keep people challenging God's laws. It's the world that we see today. Um, if God were to insist that everyone obeys his commands, um, he couldn't give life to everyone. He'd have to, he'd have to zap all the wicked people until, until we were like just forcing and, you know, like those, those, um, those people in, you know, just surfing out of fear or whatever. Only in God's kingdom will we get all three. And well, we'll get, we'll get a loving community and eternal life for everyone, but, but, but free will will be in a sense removed because we will have God's divine nature. We will, we will be like God. It says in the scriptures, we will be like him. We shall see him as he is. And so this mortal nature, if you've read first Corinthians 15, if you haven't stop the tape and go read it, the video, um, showing my age, uh, stop the video and go read it. It says clearly um, that this mortal will put on immortality, this corruptible nature, this nature that is um, always making bad choices will be done away with. <clears throat> and so, and then our will will be like his, as, you know, as Jesus is now, he no longer has that, you know, not well, thy will be done, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And that will be taken away and we'll live in a loving community, a paradise on earth. Everyone then alive will um, have eternal life and we will serve God in perfection. So free will is important. We see it from the very beginning. We can see it in Genesis chapter two. Uh, God said to Adam and Eve, of every the tree of the garden, you may freely eat. I give you a warning. Don't eat of that one there, but you you can do what you want. Make a choice. Are you going to obey me? Are you going to serve me? Or are you going to listen to alternative voices <clears throat> that, that cause you to question my love for you? 
make a choice. And uh, they had a free will to choose. Their choice would have serious consequences, of course, for them, as do our choices. You know, Moses peels to the people as they're about to enter the land. You know, I've set before you this day good and evil, life and death. Choose life. But the very fact that we're given free will means that we sometimes make bad choices. And there's huge consequences. But the principle remains. It's true for us all. We can choose to serve God or not. He's not going to force us to obey him. But the consequences of our choices are real. But of course, God did intervene. In the big scheme of things, he did intervene. He sent Jesus. And Jesus broke that cycle. Remember the cycle of sin and death that just went round and round and round and round. That cycle was broken. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. To break the sin cycle, we have to serve Jesus. We don't get to the Father, but by him. Um, and, and, as, and the opportunity for life eternal. Now, a reminder here as we move into our terminology section that um, there's all kinds of terms and phrases that are defined that are important to understand if we're going to read the learn to read the Bible effectively, and they're in the terminology section in the notes. We're just going to pick on, on a couple here. We've been talking a lot about, about Genesis today with the creation uh, and the first six days of creation. Well, we're gonna, this word Sabbath, we want to just dig into a little bit, a little bit deeper. Um, Genesis chapter 2 opens saying that the six days of creation were finished um, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested. It's this word rest, which is the Hebrew word Shabbat. Uh, we say Sabbath. That's where we get it from. We're again, kind of an anglicized Hebrew word. He rested on the seventh day from his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested Shabbat from all his work, which God had created and made. And so that's the origin of of the Sabbath as we know it. Um, It means to rest, literally. And and God um, gave dominion um, to man. Uh, We see that God worked as it were for six days. And and then man was to take over. He said to to Adam and Eve, um, well, God was speaking of, uh, with, with the angels, he was speaking of his creation. And he said, let us make man our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and so on. So mankind was given dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is Genesis 1, verse 27. Were made in God's image and likeness so that they were blessed. They were told to be fruitful and to be multi- to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So God kind of said, look, this is the creation that I made over to you god rested on the seventh seventh day and man was to work in that land in originally the garden uh, to tend it and to care for it and and that was the way things were to stay but unfortunately man sinned and was removed from the garden and it's as if now man had to rest and God had to go back to work. And so the Sabbath day was a time for man to remember that God was at work. You stop doing what you normally do. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you can labor. Do all your work for six days, just like I had to work. 
because now I've got to go back to work and you need to rest. The seventh day is a, is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord. You don't do any of your own work. Not you, your son, your daughter, nobody. It's a time of rest to just take a break, to stop doing what you're doing all the other days of the week when you're supposed to be doing, having dominion over the earth and working for me, but you messed up. So take one day and stop. But because of sinfulness, because of evil, God has got, had to go back to work. And, and he likens it to the six days when God was making the earth and then he rested. Now man has to follow that pattern. And it's really because in the big scheme of things, God has gone back to work. We have languages like this. God saw there was no man, Isaiah 59, verse 16. He wondered that there was no intercessor to do the big work of, of, of salvation and of, of truth. There is therefore his own arm, right arm brought salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. Isaiah 63, 5, I looked, there was no one to help. There was no one working with God, as it were, no one doing God's work. I wondered there was no one to uphold, to, 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 to do the things that I've asked. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And, and Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is the work that God is doing, the big work, the important work, the work of salvation, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ. God was at work. He wasn't resting. He was at work all this time. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Remember, the problem was sin. How do we deal with this problem? How do we break the sin cycle? We have sins forgiven. That breaks the cycle. And that happens through Jesus, through baptism into his name, through through the forgiveness of sins through him. Um, and, and, and this reconciliation takes place. And it doesn't have to lead to eternal death. Temporary death, perhaps. But resurrection and glorification follows that work. That God is doing. And so the Sabbath reminds us of this. It reminds us that we need to stop, take some time from our own pursuits and, and to, to, to think about the great work that God has done for us in his son. And this is the true Sabbath. As it says in Isaiah 58, 13, this was God's plan from the beginning. Not, not, a, not a, a rest to do nothing, not a, you know, making sure we we don't do this or don't do that, like the, the Pharisees had misunderstood and misinterpreted it, where Jesus could heal a man on the Sabbath day, and they said, what are you doing? You can't do work on the Sabbath day. And the, the leader of the synagogue says, look, if you're going to get healed, would you mind coming on some other day than the Sabbath? Don't, you don't come on the Sabbath to get healed. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? This is the work of God. I'm I'm doing the right thing. And, and it's alluded to here in, in Isaiah 58, verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable. You shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And he goes on to say, like fasting, fasting wasn't about not eating food and afflicting yourself. Fasting was about giving your food to others. Same with the Sabbath. It wasn't about doing nothing, sitting back and putting your feet up. It was about stop doing your own thing and help others do the do the work of God, do the things that God wants you to do. That's what Jesus tried to demonstrate. And so he healed people on the Sabbath day. He fed people on the Sabbath day. It was all about doing things for other people. And of course, Jesus did that 
24 seven, you know, so, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what day it is of the week. We need to turn as much as possible those days, the things that we're doing to serve God. And so in conclusion, we've, we've come through this six weeks. Uh, I hope it's been helpful to you and that you've been able to feel more comfortable and more confident in yourself to read the Bible effectively. And so like um, Joshua was encouraged, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Learn to read the Bible effectively. Do it regularly, day and night. Meditate upon it. It's The answers aren't going to come quickly, but they will come if we if we allow God's word to, to, to germinate and to ruminate in our mind and to observe to do all that is written in it. It's not just an academic thing. It impacts our life. For then you will make, he will make your way prosperous. Uh, you will be prosperous and you will have good success in, in spiritual ways, in godly ways. <clears throat> and Joshua then takes this back to the people, the end of his life. Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord, or Yahweh. Remember? Yahweh. Yahweh. Breathing the word of God, breathing it in and breathing it out. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods. I know we need to, to focus on God's word, have it part of our family, have it part of our, our life at every every step of the way. And, and again, he's, it comes down to free will. Joshua says, look, if you don't want to serve God, go for it. You can go serve the idols of this world. You can, you can serve yourself. You can give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's your heritage. That's your nature. But he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and or Yahweh. Um, and, and just like Moses had said to the people, you've got a choice here. Life or death, good or evil, choose life. There's an appeal made. That's what I'm going to do, says Joshua. I hope you will do the same. So what have we learned? We just reflect back upon our six weeks. Focus on what you know, not on what you don't know, what you not what you don't know. Don't get frustrated. It's like a puzzle. It's like a crossword. You know, pieces are going to start together and fit together. And as you get some of the letters, others are easier to get. As part of the puzzle comes together, you get to know whether that blue piece is sky or lake. Um, but it takes some time. Don't get frustrated by what you don't know. Focus on what you do know. Start in Genesis. Our next series is on Genesis. We encourage you to just start reading through Genesis and start putting into practice some of the things that we've learned these six weeks. And it takes time. You need preparation. Set aside a time. Find a planner that helps you to read through the entire Bible. Don't just focus on your favorite parts or the parts you can understand. Force yourself to, to read through every single part of Scripture. It's all there for a reason. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, or instruction in righteousness. How to read? Try reading aloud. Read in, read in groups. Find other people you can read it with. Look for echoes. Ask questions. Have a book where you can write down things. Do, do some word studies. Look up words. Take up, take up the challenge. Read effectively. When you don't understand, have patience. Use other translations. Ask other people. Look at some word meanings or dictionaries or whatever it takes. And of course, pray for wisdom. God will never refuse those who want to learn about him. Pray for guidance and wisdom. 
and remember that the answers you have, the answers to the questions that you have are in the Bible. Be motivated because God does have a plan for your life and for this earth. And it's a glorious plan and you can take part of it, part in it. So we, we encourage you read the Bible effectively, read it, take up the challenge, be motivated. Now, just a little plug for our final um, worksheet slash homework. This is a putting it all together. We're going to look at cross references and echoes and Bible dictionaries and word meanings. And the big picture is this phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth. It, it's really the big picture of everything. God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. So I encourage you to, um, to take up that challenge and, and work through that worksheet. Um, and at the end of every worksheet, we'll, I'll remind you that there um, is a proof. And this is proof number six, proof that the Bible is inspired by God. And this one looks at the nation of Israel. Very relevant today um, in uh, November of 2023, October, November 2023. Um, you know, what's going on in the land with the, the war and, and, and all the turmoil? Well, God is at work. We believe in the, the nation of natural Israel, uh, not just the, the world of the believers, the, the, the spiritual Israel, those that are baptized into Christ and become heirs to Abraham's promise. But he's made many, many promises. We saw that a little bit last week in our section on Jews and the law of Moses. So there's more information there. Um in that uh, last proof. So uh, if you haven't downloaded those, they're available wherever you got this uh, video from. So reach out and, and get the, the slides for these um, presentations, the extensive notes um, and the homework. So thanks for being with us through these six weeks. I pray for God's uh, blessing upon your um, desire and attempts to read his word. Uh, we know that God blesses those who seek him in sincerity and truth. You know, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be given unto you. And so it's my prayer that God will bless you as you desire to read his word and especially to read it more effectively. Take care and God bless.